Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we're pleased to be speaking with Dr. J.D. Greer. Greer is the pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and author of numerous books, including Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, Jesus Continued, and most recently, Not God Enough, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. J.D., thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you having me, Jared. Yeah, everything going well in North Carolina? Uh, it's going great. It's a great time of year. Um, our college students just left our church, which is always sad. I feel like one week, you know, I show up and the audience, you know, just looks so full. And the next week I show up and it looks like, and I always, you know, I've done this for a decade now. And every time <laughs> I'm like, did I see something last week? And then I'm like, no, no, it's just the college students are gone. But yeah, so it's, it's good, but it's a good time. We're heading into the summer, obviously, and a lot of, having a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, um, tell me about your new book, Not God Enough, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. What are um, some of these small God big problems that you cover in the book? <laughs> yeah, well, basically it's the idea that um, a lot of our spiritual I call them pathologies or problems go back to a view of God that's too small. And it's not a spiritual autobiography, Jared, but it definitely is something I probably dealt with for a couple decades in my faith. Um, you know, just from the very earliest days of faith, I've just had what a lot of people have really difficult questions. You know, why, why would God allow this to happen? I, I get that some suffering is, you know, good for working good purposes, but you know, what possible good reason could God have for something like, you know, the Holocaust and why isn't God doing more to, you know, accomplish world evangelization and, um, just any level of, you know, number of questions. And it led, just led to a lot of doubt. Um, and you know, even, even after I came to a point where I felt like I was solid in my belief and that was because I you know, was just convinced that Jesus was the son of God and there was no other explanation for his life, death and resurrection than that he was who he says he was. Even after that, um, I still had trouble feeling like close with, with God. It's like, how do you, how do you feel close to somebody that just so bewilders you and confuses you? And, 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 and I just had all these, you know, other spiritual problems, those are two of the, the key ones, but, you know, a lot of others that just kind of sprung off of those, insecurity and jealousy and all that sort of thing. And, and, and what I just really have come to realize in the last probably four or five years of this is that a lot of my problems of faith ultimately went back to this view of God that was just, I, I looked at God like he was a slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of me. <laughs> and I thought, you know, if he would just take a minute and explain stuff to me, um, then, man, I, I, I would be totally, I, I'd be, I'd be a hundred percent on board. And, and, and what I, at first, it was actually really refreshing as I was really getting into scripture, at, looking at the number of people in scripture who ha- seemed to have similar, like, you know, seasons of doubt, like I did. I mean, you know, I've you, you got the obvious ones, Job, but I got other ones like David, you know, the man after God's own heart, who, you know, if you've ever worked your, your way through the Psalms, you get to the end of some of the Psalms and. They just don't end encouraging. We don't sing them in church. You know, uh, Psalm 89, God, where are you? Darkness is my only friend. You've forsaken me. The end. You know, and it's kind of like, I, I feel like I've been there, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just not what you typically see. John the Baptist, who, after, you know, confessing Jesus as the Messiah and baptizing him, and it goes into a time of, you know, are you really the Messiah? But my favorite one, maybe Matthew 28, where after Jesus is raised from the dead and he's got him out on the mountain and he's about to ascend, um, you know, it says that, you know, he gives them the Great Commission, he starts to ascend, and Matthew 28, 17, some worship, but others doubt it. You know, and I'm like, guys, he's floating in the air. Like, <laughs> at this point, I don't think you'd still be doubting. Right. Um, but, 
you, you know what you realize is that is that Jesus they were they were still confused because all these things they had assumed that the Messiah would do he he hadn't done yet the Romans are still in charge and people are still sick and dying and it just made me realize that a lot of people have had these just totally unanswered questions and it wasn't that the closer they got to Jesus that all their questions went away but what God gave them what God gives to people like that is he doesn't give them an explanation of his ways as much as he gives them a revelation of who he is. And that's what I mean by big God, is that we're, we're like, God, explain yourself to me in a way that I can understand. And God, like he said to Job and, and others, he's like, you know, if I explain myself to you, you still wouldn't be able to follow it. Um, so what I'm going to do in the meantime is I'm going to give you a revelation of who I am and my character so that you can trust that. And um, that revelation, which ultimately comes to us most clearly through the cross and the resurrection, that's, that's ultimately what becomes the ground of our faith. It's, it's revelation, not explanation, that is the key to a strong and vibrant faith. So that, that's basically the gist of it. Uh, I wanted to call it Your God is Too Small, but uh, another guy with initials, J.B. Phillips, uh, stole that title 40 yeah. years ago. So um, I went with Not God Enough. <laughs> well, uh, so my first book was called Your Jesus is Too Safe, and it's often huh, referred yeah. to as Your Jesus is Too Small <laughs> because of the Phillips right. book. We're just stepping on each other with the titles here. Um, you know, it's counterintuitive. Well, hopefully a lot of people get confused looking for your book, and then they'll just find my book. There that you go. Be, yeah, That's cool. <laughs> um, you know, what you just laid out was really strong, I think, but it's it's counterintuitive because the idea that we could make God or that we would make God more in our image or more manageable, therefore to make him more personal or personable, that that seems like that's what should, quote-unquote, solve the problem. And yet what we're starving for is glory. And when we diminish right. the, the gloriousness of God, we diminish our ability to be satisfied. But why do you think a small vision of God can be so attractive, even to Christians? Why are some Christians even attracted to a smaller vision of God? Well, you kind of said it there. I'll, I'll just expound on that, is that a small God is safe. He's predictable. He's manageable. He doesn't embarrass you at parties. <laughs> you know, you, you just you, you just redefine him. It's kind of you know, God ends up liking what you like and hating what you hate, and doesn't confuse you and all those sort of things. And um, I think we we prefer that for a couple reasons. One, you know, we're sinners, and I feel like you know Romans one teaches us that the essence of sin, or at least one of the core elements of it, is is we're trying to tear down the glory of God and add that glory to ourselves, which is just a fancy theological way of saying that we're trying to make God small and ourselves really big. Um, so that's one reason. The other reason is because we're Americans. And, you know, Americans, you know, probably of any culture has been the, hey, let's strip it down to its parts and, you know, let's, let's re I mean, I've got a book in my library. I'm looking at it right now called God for Dummies. As if, you know, you can <laughs> yeah. take it apart. And, you know, which, um, and, and so we, we, we like that. And so you just, you, you get in the habit of hearing people, you know, just kind of, they, they pick and choose what parts of the Bible. I was watching, I tell the story in the book, I was watching a talk show one time where, um, you had two people on there debating some moral issue, and CNN or PBS or something like this, and both of them claimed to be Christians, and um, one of them was, at least I could tell, a sincere Christian who just you know, believed the Bible. The other one was more of a, I guess we could say, on the liberal side, and every time this one Christian would try to explain what, what the Bible was saying about it, this other liberal guy would kept interrupting her, you know, saying, oh, but my Jesus would never do this. My Bible would never. And she finally looked at this guy, and she said, hey, man, you don't get your own personal Jesus. You, know, you <laughs> don't get right. your own Bible. It, there, there's a real Jesus. And so we, we reduced it because it's just easier. It feels easier to believe in. But the irony 
And what I try to really you know, flesh out in the book is the irony is that kind of reinvented, small, domesticated God ends up being unable to sustain our faith or ignite our passion. Um, you, you see that with the, in the story where they, they reconstruct God as a golden calf you know, out there uh, you know, on the plains outside of where God gave his Ten Commandments. Is ultimately, this God can't sustain your faith. He can't really account for the mysteries of creation or the mysteries of suffering. Um, so it's the irony is that he feels easier to believe in, but then it ultimately collapses and your faith is left in a worse state than it was you know, to begin with. Yeah, no, that's, it, it's really fascinating that it would work that way. Um, and, and I think it is, as you were saying, related to um, how satisfying glory is in a way that we don't expect. Right. Yeah. And it's so, like the ultimate trick of Satan is that he convinces us to stop believing in a God who never existed in the first place. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, see all these people that lose their faith. I'm like, well, the faith that you had in the God that you had made up wasn't real anyway. So you, know, you maybe need a fresh start with just taking, you know, receiving God on his terms. Yeah, well, and it makes me think also of historic church movements and, and, and gospel recovery movements, revival. I've heard it said, and and I'm not sure if it's true, I haven't checked this, but I've, I've heard it said that most of, um, you know, uh, Historic movements of God, big movements of God in church history um, have proceeded from the recovery or the preaching of Paul's letter to the Romans. I don't remember. I, I think I heard Ray Ortland say oh, that yeah. once. I, again, I don't know if that's exactly true, but yeah. I think if we look back but historically— But no person can disagree with that, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you just got to nod your head and say, oh, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, but even apart from that, when we look at like the historic revivals, you know, First Great Awakening, Reformation, what have you— we do see that the vision of God that they're casting, um, regardless of the text that they you know tend to be preaching from in the churches or what have you, is this very expansive, um, you know, gigantic this this universe um, encompassing glory that comes from the one true God, and I think there's something to that that right. you know trying to you know diminish and and make God into sort of the God Junior or you know, the God who's sort of the sidekick for your, you know, personal self-improvement doesn't seem right. to captivate or, or create, um, you know, this kind of revivalistic movement, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just, you know, just to affirm that with a personal kind of illustration of it, um, the book that probably saved my faith, you know, I put that in air quotes, but saved my faith at a time when I was at one of my lowest is when I was a missionary with the International Mission Board. Um, was overseas doing faithful mission work and doing all the things I was supposed to be doing, but just had all these questions about, like, you know, God, why are there so many Muslims that have yet to come to faith in Christ? Why don't you do something about this? And um, the book that, that did it was not an apologetic book. It was John Piper's Desiring God. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, in there, that, that book is built on the idea of a big God. And I just, I saw, that was where I first, I didn't know how to articulate it, but it was where I saw that, that just my entire approach to God was so man-centered. Um, you know, Proverbs 1-7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord was what I tried to skip in my faith. I thought that, you know, no, you, you know, God and I are pretty much peers. He's a slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of me. And, you know, if, if, he can just, if we can just get on the same page here, then, then, then I won't lose my faith. And so it's that idea of a big God that will, will do that. And so I'm hoping that this book, I mean, first of all, I realize that the end of this paragraph is about to compare my book to Desiring God. Please don't laugh out loud in my face. <laughs> All right, just, I'm not comparing that. That's, 
Silently, uh, I'll laugh. Uh, a classic. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, I'm hoping that this this will just it's been this way for our church have the same kind of effect on people to say, hey, I'm not just going to answer the problem of evil, and I'm not going to lay out the case for the resurrection as important as those things are. I'm going to show you that a lot of your struggles just going back to a you know a deficient view of God that comes out of your uh, your sinful heart. So, and the book also comes with a guarantee that it will start a revival in your church and not you get your money back. So, you know, there's that. Man, you you can't beat that. So, <laughs> whatever the retail price, it's totally worth it. Um, all right. So, let, okay. Let's talk about bigness from another angle here. Let's talk about church size. Um, there's not a normal pastor out there who doesn't want their church to reach more people and to grow. Um, I'm, I'm utterly convinced that it's only weirdos who don't want their churches to grow. Um, so, so for pastors, um, who are enjoying numerically growing churches, however, what are some things that you would warn them about? Yeah. I mean, no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, everybody, ministry is a great place for guys with the idol of success to hide Mm. because we can baptize our idols of ambition and people pleasing and money and power. We can baptize them in, you know, the, the language of I'm doing it for God. And, you know, I think that it's a very dangerous place to be. And I've had to confront this idol numerous times. And I'd love to say that there's, you know, I've got a grave out back where I've got this idol buried. But it just, in the moment, it's like John Calvin said, the moment I feel like I get it conquered and take my, you know, divert my eyes somewhere else, it's, it's like, you know, whack-a-mole. It pops back up and yeah. i got to deal with it again. Um, there's a story I, I tell a lot of your, our younger pastors here that we're um, training in our church. You know, I, I talk about how, um, you know, at one point I was praying for uh, just revival. I was praying for a ton of people to get saved in our church, you know, and uh, the kind of movement here that would, you know, be the kind that when you tell the story of Christianity 100 years from now, you're like, oh, yeah, there was that chapter in Raleigh-Durham where God you know, saved thousands of people and sent out all kinds of people to the mission field. And it was one of those moments where, as I was praying for this, it was, you know, I don't know, I, I didn't hear an audible voice from the Holy Spirit, but. You just had this kind of a just sense God moving in my heart, and the question that 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 arose in my heart was, all right, what if um, what if what if I answer this prayer? What if I say yes and send a revival? But what if I don't use your church to do it? What if you know your buddy's church down the road? It's the one that gets big, and it's the one that gets mentioned in the history books, and yours, you know, your church never nobody ever knows about you. And I, Jared, I know the right answer. I know that I was supposed to say, oh yes, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. Right, right. I, I know that's the right answer, but it, it wouldn't have been the real answer. You know, I wanted I wanted I wanted God's kingdom here, but I also wanted my kingdom. And you know the way I, I confess it to our congregation is, you know, a lot of times when I say thy kingdom come, what I really mean is my kingdom come. And it, just the jealousy that I had for other pastors and the territorialness and the, you know how I lived or died based on, you know, the attendance and the offering the week before. Um all these were signs, like St. Augustine says, of smoke from a fire. You know, that smoke, my, my, my jealousy, my anxiety, my fear, um, my, my mild depression when things were going well, those were all smoke from the fire that shows the real altar that I was worshiping at, which was, you know, power and money for myself. And so, yeah, if God has blessed you with a big church and a big ministry, it's something that hopefully sends you to your knees and just saying, God, please don't let this and the I don't want to just get disqualified because I get lifted up with pride like the devil and become your enemy instead of instead of your witness and advocate. How how do you stay 
lowly at heart? What are some practical things you can do to sort of cultivate that, you know, humble thyself sort of, uh, you know, discipline? Yeah, I thought about this a lot. I don't know if I don't know if I've really got the the, the kind of the silver bullet. Like this is you know, three things you you got to do. But I, I do think community has been a really really big help to me in this. Like genuine community. Yeah. Um, I asked Paul Tripp one time, uh, the counselor Paul Tripp. I said, "Why you know why are these guys? Just I mean because you and I both know he's just just like a regular string of people from every not just like you know one tradition, but." Seems like every tradition that just, or just like every week, there's a new one that's coming out. Yep. And I said, I asked him, I asked Paul, uh, Paul I said, is it, is it a lack of community? And he kind of you know, paused for a minute and did that, you know, kind of weird look off into space thing he does uh, <laughs> uh, over his mustache. And he says, he says, no, he goes, all these guys have community. He says, they're all extroverts, people you know, are involved in their lives. He said, but what most of them don't have is pure community, like, People who can really look into their lives and just and just see, like, hey, things are you're not in a good place right now. Yeah. And I, you know, he said, he said that 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 leads to the second kind of problem that these guys have, and they they forget the power of indwelling sin. That you never really graduate past your your idol. You know, you can get some victory over them, but but they're but they're still in there. And he said it's ultimately community that helps you identify that. Uh, I think it was David Pallison who says, you know, things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutant. And so if you don't have people that are looking in there. So it's been helpful for Veronica and me, my wife and I, very practically. I mean, things like, you know, we're in a small group uh, with a bunch of normal people in our church. I have uh, numerous friends that I meet with around here that don't work for me and aren't that impressed with me. And, you know, their paycheck doesn't depend on you know them keeping me happy. And, yeah. and they're life-giving. Uh, I moved into a neighborhood uh, with a couple of families in our church that we're really close to. Not all in the same house, but I mean, in the same neighborhood. Um, where we, where we just, you know, we're involved in each other's lives on a, on a, just a, you know, like a rather kind of rhythmic basis. And it's just been, it's been so like life giving for us that I would say that's been a, a big, you know, key to staying. The nature of being a successful pastor is you, you start to pull away, you start to feel isolated, you start to believe, you know, what other people say about you, you know, the good things. And then you just, you kind of, it's just, it's just, messy to you know get involved in people but i would just say don't trade it my my wife she's got the greatest statement on this she says um, she's always pushing me to not you know go for the next stage or not to you know try to go for the next rung in the ladder um you know she says fame is making yourself accessible to a bunch of people you don't really care about at the expense of those that you do and she's like our quality of life as a family and your health as a man is not going to be determined by the size of the stage you stand on or the amount of books that you sell, it's going to be determined by just normal relationships with people who aren't that impressed with you where you watch their feeds and they watch yours. So, again, that's not a huge full orb answer, um, but, you know, at, at least something practical that uh, we've been pursuing. No, that was a great that. word. No, that's a great word. All right, let's take a moment for a coffee break and hear from our friends at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. 
For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. All right, we're back. We're speaking with J.D. Greer, pastor of the Summit Church, Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. J.D., I want to ask you about developing a missional culture in your church. How do you cultivate a sending capacity for a church? Yeah, well, I appreciate the way you asked the question because I feel like the answer is sort of embedded in the question. (laughs) A lot of people look at sending like a strategy when they really need to look at it like a culture. Um, Mm -hmm. Peter Drucker, uh, business guru, uh, the late Peter Drucker, his statement was that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast, which means that you can come up with strategies all day long and take copious notes of whatever conference you just got back from, but until it's just a culture at your church, then all your your efforts are going to be short-lived. So what are the ways to develop that, that sending culture? Well, I'm not just saying this because this is the, I'm obligated, you know, or the, the right thing to say, but the gospel, a thorough gospel saturation is ultimately the greatest sending catalyst in the world because you start to get overwhelmed with, you know, who God is and what he's done, and there's just no way. We, we always say Jesus is a spiritual cyclone. He never really pulls you into himself without also propelling you, you back out. And so we, uh, you know, think just, Gospel saturation and continually preaching, um, you know, the, the the extravagance of grace is is that. Um, other practical things for us are, um, you know, we try to send a lot of people on mission trips. Having been a missionary myself, a full time missionary, I know that short term trips come. You know, they're a mixed bag, where you got a lot of you know things that are unhelpful. But one of the benefits that a short term trip gives to people is it gives them just a first hand experience of of what the gospel is doing around the world. And it always makes people come back and ask the question, you know, why isn't this you know, happening um, happening more in our community? Um, we Probably one of the first big moments in our church in creating that sending culture was um, when we said, this first year I was pastor, our church was relatively small. We sent 40 people on a mission trip. And it financially about killed us um, you know, doing it. But our people came back, and I, 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 I trace one of our defining moments back to, to them coming back to the church and just, and just what it did. Um, so that's the second one. Third is we just, I try to, you know, in my preaching, I never, um, I go, we have a missions pastor, and I go over the message with him every week, mm. and he helps me see places that I can connect whatever I'm teaching to the Great Commission. Um, and it's, it's really helpful because it's just, I mean, the whole Bible is, um, you know, C.J.H. Wright, I don't believe everything he says, but he, um, one of the things he really helpfully points out is that the, Bible is a book written on the mission of God, and so any text you interpret needs to be tied back to the mission of God, and that's um, that's been helpful. We engineer all of our ministries so that disciple making disciples is the ultimate kind of result or the ultimate purpose of them. Um, our, our kids area, we you know just even in the aesthetics of it, we design it like an airplane hangar um, so that you know it's just like hey you're you're here to be sent. We do you know when we do like. Um, parent commissioning, or what some people call baby dedication, they, uh, you know, we one of the things we ask our parents to vow is that they're going to Psalm 127 their kids. They're going to raise them up for the mission of God, and I have them vow as a part of the thing that when God calls their child to Afghanistan or Indonesia or India one day, that they promise they will not stand in the way, that they will rejoice in it and support their kid as they as they go off into the mission of God. We end every service with you know the words "You are sent" instead of dismissed. We we try to send people, and um, we frequently have missionaries that we have them on video. Sometimes, you know, leading the pastoral prayer moments where they'll, you know, share what's going on overseas, and they'll they'll do it. It's just it's led to a culture that's given 
lot of um, – it's just made it, you know, part of who we are. You don't have to wait around here for the annual mission series. To there you it. go. It's a, big, it's a big deal. Yeah, I think uh, – yeah. Our goal is to plant 1,000 churches, and we're on number 240-something, and we just sent out two weeks ago our, our 1,000th person that has left our church to go um, on missions or our church planting team. Yeah. No, that's excellent. I think, you know, most people underestimate how important just the – pervasive seeding, you know, the cultivating of, of that, um, you know, of the sending mandate of, of the commission, um, how important and shaping that is beyond sort of the occasional in- intentional missions campaign or missions conference or what have you, like we're going to focus on this once a year or once a quarter or what have you, um, but actually tailoring the, the application points in our message um, our discipleship strategy or discipleship process, all of that around um, you right. know, the application of sending, I think is great. Do you think evangelism has changed in the 21st century? Do, do we need to evangelize differently? Well, I mean, <laughs> yes and no. Okay. Um, I mean, in a, in a sense, I mean, I, I'm genuinely, you know, Steve Gaines, the uh, president of our, our convention right now, is, I think it's been a very helpful. Um, call that he's given that evangelism has to be at the forefront of everything that we do. Um, you know, like it, 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 what we found is that it was easy to send out, you know, cool church planners and knew how to wear ripped jeans and, you know, had frosted hair, you know, and, and, and had all the cultures that knew how to gather a crowd, but had never really made a disciple who made a disciple. And evangelism was assumed. And that's, I think, not helpful. I mean, sometimes, you know, you've got guys in, in our circles who, man, they just, they don't know how to harvest. Right. And I don't want to get into all the nuances of, of invitations and all that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I, you know, it, I want to, I want guys like Charles Spurgeon who, yeah, they had good solid theology, but, and they were just, you know, let's seek and save the lost and let's draw them to, I was raised in a world where, and, you know, your first act of sanctification was going out door to door witnessing. Um, and the good part that that imparted to me is it just, you know, it, it, it was an intentional thing. It's like, Hey, you don't just accidentally lead people to Christ. You have to initiate conversations. You have to pursue people. And, um, as we have recognized, and this gets to the, to the yes part of the question of why it's changed. Um, we've recognized that, you know, in our culture, uh, you know, people don't listen to strangers, whether that's a stranger in their inbox or a stranger that shows up on their doorstep. And so you end up spending a lot of time with very little return when you are just, you know, going out knocking on doors. I'm, I'm not saying it's never appropriate, but it's just, you know, not people question how effective it is. Um, we haven't come up with, with a lot of really good replacements for how do you teach people to intentionally evangelize? How do you teach them to um, engage in relationships that are, that are headed toward gospel conversations? So uh, that's why I give that kind of qualified yes and no. I feel like there's some things the older generation needs to teach us on this. And, but then there's also some, we just can't go back and do it the way we did it 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I think you're right. Brother, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, man, thank you for having me. Yeah. I I, I look forward to seeing you hopefully in a few weeks here. Yeah, see you at the convention. We've been been speaking with J.D. Greer, pastor of the Summit Church and author of the new book, Not God Enough, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. Thanks so much for listening. I hope it's been a blessing to you. And as always, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Review us on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast. 
hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.